Well, it is a blessing to be here. It's an honor and a privilege. Um, and, you know, we have been faithfully praying for you at Proclamation Church. So it's a blessing to come and to say, man, Proclamation Church brings greetings. Citizens Church, we're praying for you. We're appreciative of what you're doing. Uh, one of the things we've been praying for, two things, is that the, the Lord would help you to raise up elders and that the Lord would help you to find a home, a, a building. And it seems like the Lord over the last few years has been answering that prayer. So know that you're not alone in that. And we are, again, grateful for, for the time to gather, grateful for Robert, his kind words. Um, as he said, we will be in Nehemiah chapter 13. If you have a blue Bible uh, by the chair, that's page 409. Nehemiah is in the Old Testament. Um, it's after the second, first and second books, as I call them. First and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, um, Ezra, then Nehemiah. If you get to Job and Psalms, you've gone too far and you gotta go back a little bit. This is the last chapter in the book of Nehemiah, and it brings to a close this story, this long story of the Israelites leaving Babylon, who are, they were captive there, leaving there and coming back to Jerusalem, back to their home. So let's begin with, Jer uh, with Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 1. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated, from the, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites." singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God." And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his own field." So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithes of grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as a treasure over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padaiah of the Levites, as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zechar the son of Metaniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to the brothers, to their brothers. Remember me, O oh my God, for concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. 
In those days I saw in Judah people trading, treading wine presses on the Sabbath and, break, and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys. Also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into the Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, why is this thing, what is this thing, what is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem, before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should, that they, uh, should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought into on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod and Ammon and Moab, and half their children spoke the language of Ashdod. They could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each other. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there, is, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all that's great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Je Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sambalat, the Hornite, Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant and the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Let's pray, church. God, you are gracious to us. We know that you do remember. We pray that we would be hearers of the word as we walk through this passage that you would instruct and guide that there is conviction it would be from you that we would walk faithfully according to your word that we would obey you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 
I uh, enjoy a good story. Recently, I just finished up two novels that I was reading, and um, they both ended kind of the same way. And, and you, may, you might relate to this, where a novel or a story ends, and it's not bad, but it's just not very good either, right? So it's, it finishes, and it's not bad, but it's just not a, a good ending. At the end of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Frodo, who's tasked with taking this ring to to Mordor to be destroyed, the very end, this heartbreaking moment where he almost doesn't destroy the ring. And it's this edge of your seat, and you think this is all over, all the effort, all that's been given, all the lives lost, and for what? For nothing. Is this how the story is going to end? I don't want to spoil it for you. If you're, you've, had, you've had plenty of time, I think, to, to know the story, to read the books, watch the movie. That's not how it ends. The way it does end, actually, is the way I think most of us hope that our story ends, with hope. There's great joy. There's this reunification with friends. There's this lightness as the burden of life has been lifted, as dark, evil things are defeated and as goodness and light reign. That's a good story. The story of Nehemiah, these exiles coming back from Babylon to Jerusalem, it isn't quite like that. It actually ends more like the other stories that I mentioned. It's good, but not quite what we were hoping for. The story of God's people who returned from Judah, from Babylon to Jerusalem, it's one of hardship, It's one of humility, it's it's progress, it's frustration. It's a story of God being faithful to renew and restore his people. He's faithful to renew and to restore his people. And there is a theme that we're gonna see, I I hope, in chapter 13. And there's these three kind of elements that I wanna bring out that I will argue is in chapter 13 of of Nehemiah. It's also in this whole story of um, Ezra and Nehemiah throughout scripture and even in your life and my life. And the theme is that sanctification is messy and it requires gospel transformation. And sanctification, it's messy and it requires gospel transformation. That's the theme I want us to see in this text the pattern that we see that through in Nehemiah is first that God's word and God's spirit brings understanding. God's word and God's spirit brings understanding, which brings about repentance and obedience. The second thing we're going to see is how sin can easily creep into our lives through people, through our comforts, and through relationships. The third thing is that ongoing Repentance and obedience is a pattern for the Christian life. So the first pattern, God's word gives understanding. It brings about repentance and obedience. So we begin with this scene, the first three verses, where they're they're reading the book of Moses, Moses, which consists of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And it seems like they're reading Deuteronomy 23, 3 through 5, which says, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Because they did not meet you with bread and water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, 
to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. So they're reading this passage. And notice how just in this passage, what the enemy was intending for bad, the Lord used for good. The Moabites, the Ammonites, were barred from being a part of this, the assembly of the Lord. Now, if you're familiar with the, the story of Ruth, you'll know that Naomi, the great-grandfather of David, was a Moabite. She was a Moabite woman, which shows us the kindness of the Lord to be gracious to those who truly are humbling this, themselves in seeking after him, forsaking all other gods and going after him alone. So we have this assembly, the law is read, the people realize that we have not been following the command of God's word. Look at verse three. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. They took action to obey God's word. They read it, it revealed their error, their mistake, their sin, and they set about doing what was right, to obey God's word. And again, this is the pattern we see in Ezra and Nehemiah. It's a pattern we see out th throughout the scriptures. It's a pattern that we should see in our lives as well. God's word is revealing to us. We see our sin, we repent and we believe. We see this in chapter eight of Nehemiah. Now, there's this time where we, they gather the people together and they read the law and they taught it, it says, so that the people understood. What a difference it is when you understand the word of God. Not just that you hear someone proclaiming it or you hear someone reading it, but you understand what God's word says. That's what happened in chapter eight. And then way back in Ezra, which is the same story, in chapter five, we have a similar thing happen where the people stop rebuilding the temple because they're fearful. They're fearful of the people around them. And then two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, come and they rebuke these brothers Sisters say, get to work building the temple. So the word of the Lord is brought to them. They repent and they begin to work. They take action. See, God's word brings understanding. With that come a, a, a desire, if you have God in you, for repentance and obedience. A desire to stop doing what you're doing and follow his ways. Anytime... We interact with God's living word, his living and active word. If we have God's spirit in us, it's going to do something to bring life. Anytime you interact with it, if you have God's word and you have his spirit, it's going to do something in your life. If you have doubts about your faith, read God's word. Read it. If you're struggling with a besetting sin in your life, read God's word. If you're struggling in your marriage, read God's word. If you're raising children and you're weary and you're tired or they're breaking your heart, read God's word. If you have a, a moral dilemma or ethical situation in your life, read God's word. If you're a young Christian and the Bible is confusing to you and you're not sure what all these things mean, read God's word. If you're an older Christian and you're weary and you're tired and you're just kind of dry, your spirit's dry, read God's word. No other thing is going to bring life like God's word with God's spirit. So read God's word. It will bring about repentance and obedience 
enjoy. It's His Word that reveals. This is, this is what Paul's saying in Romans 7, 7. It's by the law that I know what sin is. It's because God's Word has revealed these things that I, I know what is good and right and true and how I need a Savior. God's Word reveals these things. You have the revealing truth of God's Word. It's working. Trust that. The Puritan John Flavel once wrote, the Scriptures teach us the best way of living, the noblest way of suffering, and the most comfortable way of dying. That's God's Word. So that's what verse one through, verses 1 through 3, they're, they're revealing the power of God's Word. And they're seeking to be obedient. And then we get to verse 4, and the passage does this weird thing. It now takes us back to the beginning. See, 1 and 3 through 3 is like this ending scene, like a movie where it starts with the end. And you're like, okay, that's interesting. And then it begins back to the beginning, and it's going to tell you how it got to the end. How they got there. How they got to reading the book of Moses. And this is the second pattern we see through this verses 4 through 29. How sin can easily creep into our lives through people, comfort, and relationships. It just creeps back in. God was faithful to renew and restore. Ezra and Nehemiah were working to restore God's people. So much effort, so much struggle was put in, yet sin slipped back in. Nehemiah is clear in verse six. He left for a few years, went to Persia, came back. Things were in disarray. People were in the temple who had no business being in the temple. They started marrying pagan women. They weren't honoring the Sabbath. Just a reminder that the power for things to pull us back into sin. To be clear, people, comfort, uh, relationships, those things in and of themselves aren't bad. Those things in and of themselves are, are wicked or evil. But those are ways, and we, we see it clearly in the text, that we can be sucked back into selfish desires. That we can begin to wane from worshiping God as we should, as we ought, as he has created us too. So the first point, and I think this is one of the things in your bulletin, the power of people and culture. The power of people and culture to pull on us. In verses 4 through 14, we see this, the very center of worship, the temple, was being defiled by an Ammonite, Tobiah. And to be clear, some context here, this man hated Nehemiah, and he hated God's people and those who were seeking to restore God's people and places. He was an enemy of God. And here he was living in the temple, taking up residence in the temple. Now, if you don't know, the temple, just, it's, this isn't like an Airbnb. This isn't a hotel. This isn't where you check in for the temple experience for the weekend. It's not what's going on here. But here he was. And imagine the scene. Nehemiah, who has given so much to this effort, comes back after several years. And he comes to the temple. And who he finds is the very man who hates God and hates what God is doing is dwelling in the temple. Living there. Keeping the priests from fulfilling their duties. Hardening people's hearts. Nehemiah is angry. 
He's burning with righteous anger. He throws all of the stuff out of the furniture, the belongings, out of the temple. He just gets rid of it. It's interesting, this, the ferociousness of Nehemiah. He, again, he wasn't playing games. He knew what God's word had said. He knew what the temple was for. He knew what belonged in the temple and what did not belong in the temple. You think about the power of, the, of people around you. Tobiah had these relatives. Eliashib, a connection, a relative. The culture around them, swaying them, pulling them. It's remarkable after all the things that this story gets to that somehow this guy ended back in the temple. But before we move on, we, we, we are well served, church. We're well served to examine our own lives. How do we treat the temple of God? How do we treat the temple? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, do you not know? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For, where, for you were brought with a, bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. So we, we read this passage in Nehemiah of the sin creeping in and how these things worked out in the temple. We must reflect, do we allow sin? Do we allow things to come in and dwell in the temple that God has redeemed, that he's paid for? Things that have no business being in the temple? Do we just put up with these things because that's what the culture does? That's what my family does? That's what my parents did? The people and the culture around us, that's powerful to pull us in a direction where we begin to allow and tolerate things that God never wants us to allow or tolerate. Oftentimes we can make excuses. You may say, hey, you know, I'm married to this person. This is, these are my parents. Or, or I live with these people. And I, you know, we, we make excuses for our behavior. You know, Eliashib was not sinning because he was related to Tobiah. That wasn't the sin. He was wrong for allowing Tobiah into a place where he did not belong and to have authority and sway in a way that he never should have. There should have been a guard against the power of these relationships. Sin creeps in. We must be diligent to fight for holiness. So Nehemiah finishes, he's thrown all this stuff out, right? He just pitches it out into the street. So he's dealt with, with this issue with the temple, with the leaders. He puts the leaders back in their place. And then he turns to the community. He's got that taken care of and he's going to bring some reform over here. And it deals with the power of comfort and commerce, of business. This is verses 15 through 23. They are not honoring the Sabbath. They're doing business on the Sabbath, it says. It's like, here we go again, blatant disregard for God's commands. Listen to the words of Exodus, chapter 20. This is verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock 
or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. God gave this command to the people, clearly, to rest, for them to allow this pattern, for them to follow God, to meditate on him, to remember what he had done for them, to remember that he had delivered them. It looks back at creation and what, how God had made creation. And it's also, as, as New Testament Christians, we look, look forward to Christ and that our rest comes in Christ. The people here were breaking the Sabbath. They were choosing comfort, making a little bit of money, some self-interests over obeying God's commands. And Nehemiah get, gets right to rebuking them, just begins to rebuke them. The merchants warning them, don't come around here, I will uh, get physical with you. Now, personally, I don't think that we are bound in the same way in the Old Covenant to the Sabbath. However, I think the New Testament teaches that the Sabbath, which is the New Testament church, which the New Testament church observed on Sunday, should be set apart for the church to gather and to worship. And for us to remember what Christ has done, and for us to rest in Him. I really appreciate the way our church's confession, which is also your church's confession, puts this. Article 15 of the Lord's Day. We believe the first day of the week is the Lord's Day. It is a Christian institution for regular observance. It commemorates the resurrection of Christ from the dead and points to the rest that awaits the people of God. It should include exercises of worship and spiritual devotion, both public and private. Activities on the Lord's Day should be commensurate with the Christian's conscience under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's a special time. It's a thing to be observed. It's a thing to, to, that should mark our week. This is the, the first day of the week. We're commanded to gather, Hebrews 10 tells us. Not because it's like, well, you just gotta get enough Sunday points, enough credits to get to heaven. No, not at all. It's out of all the things that you get to do and I, I say get to do because it's a privilege because God has given you life and breath and everything else, Acts 17 says. It's a gift for you to gather for the first thing of the week, to gather with the church, to order your affections, to remember what Christ has done, to encourage one another, and to not neglect this. But how easy is it to let just the comfort seep in, seep in. It seeps into our life just just need a little bit more sleep. I just need a little bit more sleep. I just need a vacation. I just need another vacation. I just need a, another day off. I need more time to myself. I need new clothes. I just gotta go shopping to get some things. I just need to kinda do those things. I just need some space. I don't wanna have people in my house because my house is clean. People make it messy. I need a clean house. I'm not very outgoing, I'm not an extrovert, so I don't need to share the gospel, I don't need to evangelize. See, how easy it is for just little things, which you might need more rest, you might need a vacation, you might need some time to yourself. 
But what's driving you? Are you seeking comfort? Are you seeking to take care of worldly needs around you? Every single one of us has a natural bent toward comfort and self-interest. You need to know that. Not a single one of us does not have that natural bent. All of us are struggling in that way. And I'm just simply asking the question, are you aware of this natural, natural tendency in what you're doing? You know, for Israel, they're not keeping the Sabbath. They're not keeping it. And then they have this issue of intermarriage. Look at look with me in verses 23 through 28. And this is the power of love and relationships. Again, it can be great things, wonderful things. But there's so much power in those to steal our affections away from the Lord. So we must be careful. See, way back in the book of Ezra, in chapter 9 and 10, Ezra dealt with this issue of intermarriage. The people confessed their sin back then and pledged to send the foreign women away. Now here in chapter 13, the sin has crept back in. As one commentator puts it, even the priesthood was contaminated by this sin. So it's interesting all through how Sanballat and, and Tobiah and Elisha, all these people are connected. It had to have been through intermarriage, right? So, so Tobiah and Elisha are, are relatives through marriage. Well, somebody married a foreign woman. And the issue isn't that they're foreign, like from a different country. The issue is that they worship pagan gods. It's not that they're, they're just like, they speak a different language, therefore they just must be wicked. It's the fact that they're worshiping foreign gods. And they would turn the hearts of their husbands away from God. Deuteronomy 7, God tells his people when they enter the promised land to not marry foreign women for this very reason. And then Nehemiah points this out in verse 26. Look, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Like, many were the nations. Like, Solomon was the man. You're never going to be better than him. You're never going to be smarter or, or have it all together or have all the experiences he had. And yet, he fell. Yet, he did not guard his heart. He allowed sin to creep in. 1 Kings chapter 11 tells us the story how Solomon allowed the women to turn his heart away from God. Now, if you will be patient with me, and let me give you a brief comment, a side comment about marriage. I don't know how many single people are in the room, or if you're single or engaged, if you're not married, this is especially for you. If you are married, listen up to, here's, I have some great advice. And I don't say that very often, like I got great advice. I probably think I have great advice. I probably don't have great advice very often. But listen to me on this when it comes to marriage. When you're thinking about who you should marry, the criteria is this. Are they followers of Jesus Christ? Are they followers of Jesus Christ? Now, this is really important, okay? So stick with me on this. That you must define follower in Jesus Christ. This isn't just like, hey, you follow Jesus? Yeah, I follow Jesus. Cool, let's get married. You must define followers follow. They have the resemblance of the one they follow. Jesus was humble. He served others. He spoke the truth. He was loving. He was very serious about glorifying his father. He spent time regularly seeking fellowship with his father. He believed the word. 
He was not living for himself, but for others. Ultimately, he was living to obey and glorify the Father. Are they followers of Jesus Christ? Do they follow him? This is what Jesus did. This is what we do. Are they followers define Jesus Christ. This is Jesus, God incarnate. He's fully man, fully God. Jesus was never created. He's co-equal, co-eternal with God the Father and God the Spirit. He's the only one who has lived on this earth perfectly, was crucified on the cross, died, paying the price for our sins, for the sins of his people, was buried, and three days later was resurrected, brought back to life, defeated death, and now sits at the right hand of God the Father. And he will return to earth again to judge the wicked and the righteous and to dwell with his people forever. So when you think about marriage, you think about who should you marry? Are they a follower of Jesus Christ? Ask those things. Press into those things. We must be careful. We must be careful who we give our hearts to. You must guard that. Marriage is hard. It's messy. So marry someone who follows Jesus Christ. We see the difficulty when they begin to marry people who don't love the God they love, pulls them away from him. The people we live with, the people we love, they have influence on us. They shape us. So this first pattern, again, we see is that God's word gives understanding. It gives us understanding. And then repentance and obedience follows. The second pattern we see, which we just talked about, that's how easily sin can, can sip, slip back into our life, creep back in. We see this through, through people and culture, through comfort and making money, through love and relationships. The third pattern that we see is the ongoing, that ongoing repentance, ongoing repentance and obedience is required as Christians. Look at verse 30. Thus I cleanse from everything foreign and I establish the duties of the priest and the Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering and appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Nehemiah acknowledged the sins and he dealt with them. Now he has put the people back in their place and the places in their order. And he repeats this thing for the third time, this prayer that God would remember him. We see this in verse 14, verse 22, and verse 31, this remembrance plea. And he wasn't looking for this vain, like, remember me, look what all I did, look how bad they are. He puts forth this loving call for God to remember him. Remember back in chapter one, if you're familiar with Nehemiah, He's in Babylon, and his heart begins to break over the situation in Jerusalem. And he begins to pray, and the Lord works. What he's looking for is not a plaque somewhere in the city of Jerusalem, not his picture up on the wall that he helped build, saying, this wall was built or dedicated to Nehemiah. It's not what he's after. What he is after is the same thing you and I should be after, that after we've toiled and we've worked, that we'd hear from our Father, well done, good and faithful servant. That we would long to hear that from him. 
that in the face of the opposition from the culture and the people and the sin and our own flesh, that defying those things, following after Jesus, we would hear the Father say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Nehemiah shows us this pattern. Again, it's a pattern we see throughout scripture. We see it in your life, in my life. People are pursuing sin. God's word is revealed, it's taught, they understand it, and then repentance and obedience follows. What a blessing God's word is. Another phrase that pops up three times in this chapter is about cleansing or purification. You know, in the Old Testament system, something, an object must be cleansed or purified if it was to be used to worship God. This is verse 9 of 13. Then I gave the orders, and they cleansed the chambers. 22, then I commanded the Levites, they turned, that they should purify themselves and come in and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Verse 30, thus I cleansed them from everything foreign. With every scene, with every issue that's going on, there is this cleansing, this purification that's coming. We also must be cleansed, purified, if we are to worship God. There's only one thing that can be cleansed, or that can cleanse us, as we sang in the song. It's the blood of Christ. Following him is difficult. It's messy. Lots of mistakes. It's the pattern of life, though. That we keep following after him. See, in Nehemiah's day, Nehemiah and Ezra and those reformers, they died. And what we do know is that that story ends and the people go back to their sin. It's heartbreaking. But what we know is that 400 years after the events of chapter 13, there will be another man who would come to deliver God's people. He too would read from the law to the people. And he too would call the people to repentance. And he too would overturn tables and furniture in the temple. But he alone would be crucified for their sins. And he alone would fulfill the law of Moses, keeping it perfectly. This Messiah was the one that Ezra and Nehemiah were hoping for. They placed their hope in him. Jesus Christ, church, is our hope. He will return and make all things new. He will conquer sin and death once and for all. And there will be no more contending against sin, guarding against the flesh and selfish desires. You see, where, where Ezra and Nehemiah failed, where David and, and Solomon failed, where Adam failed, where you and I fail, he does not fail. He cannot fail. He will not fail. He is victorious. He is and was and will be victorious. And because you and I are in him, we're victorious. Praise God. So growing in our faith is hard. It's difficult. We make mistakes. It's messy. That's what Nehemiah tells us. That's what just being in church tells you. Man, these, are, these people, they have a messy life. They have messy lives. But we turn to God's word again and again and again. We repent and we walk in obedience. We repent, we walk in obedience. It never ends. 
until Christ returns or takes us home. Church, let us pray. Gracious God, you are merciful to us and merciful in Christ alone. We praise you that you know us, that you have come for us. And just as you are faithful to renew and restore those who came out of Babylon back to Jerusalem, God, you are faithful to renew and restore us. So if there is sin, if there's apathy, if there's laziness or fear or a lack of faith, may we turn to your word and may your spirit guide us and give us insight. May it grow our faith. May we trust in you. May we turn from the things of this world, put our hope in you, and walk in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.